0: Next up is my conversation with the writer Genevieve Hudson about her two books, One Nonfiction and One Fiction, that came out in 2018, about the interplay between these two genres as it relates to queer identity. If you find Between the Covers is a regular part of your listening habits, consider becoming a supporter of the show in the new year. If you support the show with a per-episode pledge at patreon.com slash betweenthecovers, you can get access to bonus material from each conversation, a copy of Jesse Ball's out-of-print book, Vera and Linus, or a signed copy of Ursula K. Le Guin's Conversations on Writing, as well as receive notices and intros from me when each episode goes live. Or, if you prefer, a one-time donation, you can go to davidnaiman.com and click Support. Either way, I'm excited for the year ahead, and I hope you enjoy today's program.
1: is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin.
0: Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David and your host. Today's guest is the writer Genevieve Hudson. Hudson received her MFA in creative writing from Portland State University, where she teaches periodically fiction writing and gender studies courses. Her own writing has appeared in Tin House, Joyland, No Tokens, The Rumpus, Hobart, The Collagist, Catapult and Elsewhere. Genevieve Hudson is here today to talk about two books of hers that came out in 2018. The first is the nonfiction book A Little in Love with Everyone out from Fiction Advocate, an engagement with growing up queer in the South in relation to Alison Bechdel's graphic novel Fun Home. Chloe Caldwell says of A Little in Love with Everyone that This is the queer commentary book I needed as a teenager, and in my 20s, and today. Genevieve Hudson is a bold and intelligent new voice. Hudson is also here today to talk about her debut story collection, Pretend We Live Here, out from Future Tense Books. John Raymond says of Pretend We Live Here, Poetic, twisted, wild, and tender, Genevieve Hudson writes with what some call a burning tongue. On every page, her agile, clashing lines throw off sparks of youth and queer desire. Check this out. Here's a writer at the beginning of something truly great. Leah Dietrich adds, full of blood and dust and stars and light, Hudson captures the beauty and horror of the everyday and makes it all seem like magic. And Tom Bissell says, there are echoes here of Flannery O'Connor, Barry Hanna, and Dennis Johnson, but Genevieve Hudson is her own writer, impressively and gloriously so. Her eye for the clinching detail is unnerving, and her sympathies are fascinatingly conflicted. I hope and suspect this book will be the start of a long and inspiring career. Welcome to Between the Covers, Genevieve Hudson. Thank you. So in your book, A Little in Love with Everyone, you write that Alison Bechdel, the author of the graphic memoir, Fun Home, came out by reading books and also came by reading them. Mm -hmm. uh, That for her, representation preceded experience. And that similarly for you, that before you encountered queer stories, you couldn't recognize yourself as such. So given that you are now adding to that representation in the world with this collection of queer stories, pretend we live here, Walk us back to the first representations for you that you encountered before you had any in-the-world experience.
1: Yeah. Uh, I grew up in the South in a really heteronormative community like most people my age growing up in the South did. And in a lot of ways, I had kind of a queer childhood in the sense that I was very tomboyish and very attracted to, um, kind of this andro- androgyny or like young skate culture, really identified with boys and boy culture, but didn't really see that as, um, as something that I could stay in. I felt like it was kind of this tomboy phase because that's also the narrative that was really projected to me through culture. I didn't see uh, many representations in TV or literature, of which I read a lot of when I was young, that felt like my story was there or like my, um, yeah, sexuality was represented as I started getting older and becoming a teenager. Uh, And then in kind of a cliche fashion, I would say I, you know, enrolled in gender studies courses at a university and um, began to read books that had representations of desire that wasn't normative. Um, so for me, actually, the book "She Came to Stay" by Simone de Beauvoir um, was really this experience for me that showed me this this new avenue of desire that was queer that was um, it felt like it was speaking right into experiences that I'd had and kind of called them awake in this way that I think that literature can do and in a way that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And di- did you, when you were putting the stories together for pre- Pretend We Live Here, uh, were you thinking about representation and what wasn't represented as you wrote stories or was it more trusting that by being specific and particular about your own story that you would inevitably be adding something new?
1: Yeah, I think it's the, it was the latter. I wasn't really thinking of like, what's out there? What can I say that's different and unique? Um, it was really about finding the truth of something. So thinking about, you know, what are characters that are similar to people that I know, um, myself, uh, my community friends, and how do I really get, uh, at the truth of who they are, what they think about the way they speak, uh, and how do I write into that? And I just, I felt sure that if I got it right, that people would connect with it.
0: So in Fun Home, and hopefully, I'm guessing a lot of people have, have read Fun Home, but if they haven't, they should run out and read Fun Home. I agree. Um, in Fun Home, Alison Bechdel explores also how her dad was queer, um, but a closeted gay man. And shortly after Bechdel comes out, he kills himself. Mm -hmm. And it's something that she feels is connected, uh, though it's not entirely clear that it is connected. Um, But you wonder about a generational difference, whether Bechdel having more representations in books and in the culture at large made her father's fate less likely for her. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think that's something that she uh, kind of pulls through in her book, too, is a connection that she's making between representation and community. Um, I know that she she speaks at some point in the memoir about how she came out into this, you know, kind of queer utopia in her college, this underground Um, scene that, you know, had its own music and its own literature and zines and ways of talking and ways of relating and how that made her feel part of something and supported and she had community. And I think community is really important in being able to recognize the way you're in relationship uh, in you know, just in the world around you. And I think it can be really lonely and isolating to feel a certain way and look around and see no representation of that, um, or not know how, you know, to really find it or see it represented in art and literature, especially, um, and I, and I do think that that, you know, is something too that people from, um, Bruce Bechtel's generation have also written and spoken about too, um, so yeah, I think that representation in a lot of ways is really important to making people feel uh,
0: safe and seen, and
1: like their identity is something that's valid.
0: So one of the so one of the factors is generational difference. Like so what yeah. generation um, are you born into, and the variable of of the happenstance of what representation that you happen to be exposed to. Yeah. But another variable you could say is also geography what country you're born into, what part of a country are you born into. Mm-hmm. And your stories take place in a lot of locations, but they mainly do not take place in, in places with the well-developed radical queer communities. Mm-hmm. They mostly take place outside of places like San Francisco or New York or New Orleans. And um, and many of them take place in the South where you grew up. So how do you feel like Alabama as place influenced your exposure to representation and your sense of options about public expression, and/or how you you make decisions in what type of characters you want to have as protagonists in, in your story collection.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm I was interested in kind of the friction that's created when you have you know a somebody who's queer or in a queer body that's in a place that um, that is that causes them to really see their own differences or form their own identity in kind of opposition to what they're around. Um, and I think that that, uh, creates another layer of introspection that I find very interesting and can create another layer of like authenticity too. like, who am I really, if I'm not this community that I'm around and how do I develop, um, kind of like a true sense of self and where do I find that and I think that in most of these stories too there are some you know there are connections that are made and those connections feel really important because um they're rare because you know maybe it's harder to connect or to find that kind of community so when you find it it feels really special and important um and uh yeah, so I like I, I felt like it was more interesting to me, especially from my own you know experience as a person too, growing up in Alabama where I, I mean of course there were queer people in Alabama and there were gay people there, but I just didn't have access to them in the bubble that I was in. Um, I didn't see them. It wasn't always safe to be seen in that way. So I think you know if I'd stayed there longer, maybe into really early adulthood, I left when I was seventeen or eighteen. Um, you know, maybe I would have begun to find that and I could have found those avenues and those people. I know that there are definitely communities there. Um, and I see them now, but I think time's changing now too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, does that, does that answer your question? I feel like there was another yeah. one at the end there too, that maybe I didn't get to.
0: Well, I actually marked out a small, uh, section and, uh, a little in love with everyone I was hoping you'd read. Sure. Of course.
1: When my good friend Z told me he was bisexual, I thought he only wanted attention. This was another ploy, like the polish on his fingernails, the cuts he made beneath his boxers, the pills he dissolved under his tongue. We used to practice kissing in the bedroom of his family's trailer home. My capacity for denial was enormous. Z being bisexual was no more genuine than when he started ordering fries and Frosties from Wendy's because he was suddenly vegetarian. I was so detached from the concept of being gay that I couldn't accept queerness when it was right in front of me. I didn't believe Z's confession. I didn't believe queerness could belong to anyone like me. We were in a queer desert. We were in Paul Bear Bryant's football utopia. It's the town where George Wallace famously stood at the schoolhouse door to block two black students from attending the university. The KKK burned crosses on my stepmother's lawn because her father let black people attend his church. Prejudice was handed down like a family heirloom. The only coming out I saw in Alabama was at cotillions and debutante balls. People love what they know. And in my hometown, the queer lifestyle was hidden, unknowable. But I wasn't the only queer girl in Alabama. How many girls around me gazed at their best friend's lips as they applied makeup in the mirror? How many girls told themselves it was normal to let their eyes linger on the long necks and exposed wrists of friends whose beauty was as mysterious as a magic trick? How many girls kept a secret close to their breast?
0: We've been listening to Genevieve Hudson read from A Little In Love With Everyone, so in your conversation with Lainey Zumas, um, she she suggests that some of your stories could be read as part of the Southern Gothic tradition. Mm-hmm. And I just was curious what you felt about that, um, whether you felt like they belonged to that, what what comes up for you when that that label is, is brought forth as a possible way to understand your stories?
1: Yeah, I think when I think of the Southern Gothic tradition, which is one I, I find um, really seductive and Um, Rich and strange and interesting. I think of an investigation of a kind of deformity and strangeness and kind of twisted God logic almost that exists in the South. So I think of this kind of haunted quality. Um, I think of like looking under stones and finding these like odd communities that – to me in some way, and this is, you know, just my own take on this, have something to do with the legacy of trauma that exists in the South, Um, and I see the Southern Gothic tradition as kind of looking at that and looking at that strangeness, and um, I definitely think that maybe, you know, even though I wasn't consciously thinking, like, I'm going to write a Southern Gothic story, I'm going to write in this tradition that I am interested in a lot of those um, aesthetic sensibilities and qualities. And I, I can see how those maybe are, are present in my work.
0: Yeah. Uh, I liked when you quoted uh, Flannery O'Connor speaking about the Southern Gothic and the quote you, you said in that interview is, in these grotesque works, we find that the writer has made alive some experience, which we are not accustomed to observe every day or which the ordinary man may never experience in his ordinary life, which feels like it could be a description of queer stories, too, mm-hmm. and or um, stories that are troubling normative narratives, essentially.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Beyond, beyond the circumstance of what, of what generation and what place one is born into, there's also the question of what body one is living within. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you say you didn't hate your body growing up, but you hated what it represented. Um, the way your body tied you to a certain fate. And it is either, I don't remember whether, whether it was you or Bechdel that, that called puberty a uh, post-lapsarian melancholy.
1: That was Bechdel. That
0: was Bechdel? Yeah. I love I, that.
1: I know. Sadly, <laughs> you, I can't, you can't claim, claim that? that. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> could you could you talk more about the resentment of the ways a body represents um, beyond one's control?
1: Yeah. You know, and to go back to Bechdel, one thing, you know, she she talked about in a lecture was um, how you know there are these representations that we get also of say just characters um, in Disney or cartoons or animation and we have Mickey and Minnie Mouse this something about this like really stuck with me and she said, you know Mickey Mouse the boy is just seen as the default. this is how you are you know this is the standard and then Minnie is Mickey with a bow put on her head mm-hmm. and some eyelashes. And she was like, you know, I never felt like Mickey with a bow. I just felt like Mickey. I just felt normal. And that's so much how, how I identified with feeling. Like, I, I think especially before you hit puberty, you have, you know, these these bodies and these voices that are so much, you know, boys and girls are really the same. And it's these these um, signifiers that we place on them that separate You know, like the girls are going to wear dresses and they're going to have bows in their hair and, you know, whatever it is that we think represents femininity. And I just felt like I was okay with being a girl. That was fine with me. But the fact that I had this expectation to wear clothes that I felt were limiting or were more frilly or felt like they were trying to speak to a femininity that I didn't want spoken to one aspect of femininity because I think that there are, you know, that there are more than one ways to be feminine and we really um, expect that to have, you know, bows and frills tied to it. But I think that it can be more than that if we expand the way we think about, you know, that word a little bit. Um, Yeah. So it was more so like what was expected of me in terms of, um, you know, my – my hobbies and what my body was supposed to do. Like I remember, my neighbor once, um, yeah, you know, he had a son, and I, you know, played in the creeks with his son, and we were always, you know, getting dirty and tearing our clothes, and. One day he, you know, he looked at me, I was probably like seven, and he was like, God, you look just like a boy. You look, your boy, your legs look just like boy legs. And they were riddled with mosquito bites and hairy. And I remember kind of having been proud of that moment, you know, that I was recognized as a boy and that was tied with toughness and that I had these kind of battle car, battle scars from the creeks outside. But I also felt a wash of shame because I could tell that he wasn't saying it as a compliment. he was it wasn't fitting with him. it was doing something to sort of like and uh, you know mess with his head a little bit. He was like, this isn't quite right. Um,
0: and then there's the question of menstruation, uh, yeah. the changes in in breasts and in hips and and things that then become signifiers, whether you want them to be signifiers or not. Yeah,
1: exactly. And that felt really out of control to me because I, you know, I developed quite late too. I was this scrawny little girl for quite a long time. And then when my body started changing, it really did feel um, like something that I wanted to will away or stop or ignore, but I couldn't. And that was really confronting and conflicting for me, and I felt like, okay, I guess I have to, you know, adapt, or I guess I have to just accept that this is what is coming for me.
0: Yeah. Well, could you read for us the story, Too Much is Never Enough?
1: Yes, of course. Too Much is Never Enough. When I was young, I dreamt I was a boy, a Disney prince like the kind found in Aladdin and The Lion King, charming and boisterous and able to get the girl. I ran around the house with a wooden sword tucked into my belt. I jumped onto rugs as if they were magic carpets that could fly under my feet. I prowled the creek behind my house like a wild dog. Dads in the neighborhood confused me for their sons, and it felt like I'd won a kind of prize. In the mirror, a boy stared back. I fell asleep, and while I slept, I did have a magic carpet, and I did have a boy's body, and I was so happy you would have thought it was Christmas morning, and all the presents under the tree were for me, but when I woke up, the magic carpet was only a rug, and I was just a girl. Catherine Elizabeth was my best friend. Most people called her Cat Liz, but I called her the Lizard, and she called me the Snake. The lizard and the snake were the stars of our own adventures. We twisted plots in our favor. The lizard wore dresses, but she still knew how to climb a tree and cross a creek. She seemed really comfortable in her dresses. She said they gave her more room to move. I cut a deal with my mom that I only had to wear a dress one Sunday a month to church. I could wear jeans all other Sundays. We both thought we were getting the short stick. I already had this strange sensation that the clothes I wore could change my life. For instance, during the dress days, I only ate one donut during coffee hour, but during my jean-wearing days, I could eat two, maybe more. I could eat everything. By accident, I discovered that if I laid on my back and put my feet in the air, I could make my vagina fart. I wanted to see if the lizard could do it too, turns out she could. We spent an entire afternoon farting from our vaginas. This same afternoon, the lizard's mom came in to see if we wanted a snack of fruit leather and pecan sandies. Admittedly, it was the wrong time for the mother to enter the scene. The lizard and I were putting our vaginas against each other and farting into each other. We thought it was hilarious. A joke we could tell each other with our bodies. We were eight. It was harmless. But looking back now... I can see why the lizard's mom freaked out. After the farting incident, the lizard stopped being available to hang out. Her mom was still nice to me, but she rarely let me stay for dinner anymore, and the lizard was suddenly enrolled in ballet Saturday, which was during our normal hang time. The lizard dropped the Liz at school and started going by Katie. There were already so many Katies at our school, she became lost in a chorus of Katies. If I called her name, ten Heads would turn. I couldn't find her anymore, and maybe she liked it, feeling that she was just one of the girls. The Lizard's place was not vacant for long. I needed someone to fill the friendship-sized hole in my heart, and that's when I met Mason. Mason looked like an angel, which was lucky for him because he acted like the devil, so the two just about evened themselves out. Mason's eyes were blue as rainwater. His dove white curls literally flounced. This is how Mason got away with it, it being everything. When I met Mason, he told me he'd figured out how to build a bomb from AA batteries and skateboard bearings. The bomb did not work, but it's the thought that counts. Mason had a rifle under his bed that he swore wasn't loaded, but when he pointed it at my face, I almost vomited on my Ninja Turtles t-shirt. His dad would take him hunting the one weekend out of the year they saw each other. Mason had the smooth buck antlers to prove it. A picture on his wall showed him smeared in dark blood, holding the head of an animal to his chest. The jet-black eyes of the deer had gone glassy with death. Its pink tongue was the only thing that looked alive. My mom thought Mason was a delight. He said, yes, ma'am. Ate or steamed broccoli. And more than anything, he had that aura of a lost puppy who needed his ears scratched. "'Mason was exactly what a boy should be. "'I tried to laugh like him, "'that silent gahoff that shook his shoulders so cutely. "'We had already dressed similarly, but I was taking notes. "'He wore white undershirts with necks stretched "'and subtle dirt stains down the front. "'A fish hook was pierced through the bill of his ball cap.' My heart went swollen when I looked at him. We were the same height, same weight, same shape. When we wrestled, I could pin him down first. His body wriggled beneath me. He hated to be beaten by a girl. I hated to be beaten by a girl too. Mason stole a pack of his mother's cigarettes and that's how I spoke, smoked my first Marlboro. We went behind his house and down through the gully littered with teenage trash from teenage parties. He didn't like his mother smoking, which is why he took those packs from her. But Mason said as long as we had them, we might as well use them. The most exciting part of smoking was the wet filter. It never got more intimate than that. Our spit touching on the same cottony tube. It was like kissing him with something in between. We shared the soggy cigarette until I coughed up something yellow onto my shoes. We arm wrestled on a tree stump and I thought about letting him win. The light had gone weak pink at the sky's edge, and the sun was poised just above the maples ready to sink under the earth. At the last second, I used the full force of my bicep to level his arm down on my winning side. When he shook his hand, his knuckles were flecked with blood. During my friendship with Mason, my dreams got even more confusing. I wanted Mason to be my Jasmine, but only if Jasmine could be a boy and I could be a boy too. I wanted to wear Mason's undershirts with their subtle stains down the front. I wanted him to hug my arm while he wore the same shirt. I wanted boyish perfection, and I wanted that boyish perfection to love me. Mason was sent away to military camp before he turned 13. I saw him only during summers after that. His body continued to grow, and so did mine. We no longer had the same height, same weight, same shape. He stayed a lanky, boyish thing, just a bigger version of it. His voice deepened until it sounded like he was growling when he spoke. He carried pistols on his belt, and an army crew cut replaced his flouncy curls. My body had started to deceit that it never stopped. I left those skateboard lines behind and filled out in places I wanted to hide, under baggy jeans and tough black tees. When Mason was 19, he died in a hotel room after being released from rehab, a needle stuck deep in his elbow. His boyish body was put in a casket, and we buried it in the softest dirt. I still dream about him. He is on our magic carpet. He is riding it forever. The part of the story I haven't told you yet is that Mason and the lizard fell in love. It happened one summer when he was home from military school. There was something they found in each other they could never find in me. I was not enough boy for the lizard, not enough girl for Mason. I was something in between them. I was both too much and not enough. Mason and the lizard, now called Katie, would drop acid on the shores of a dirty, dammed up lake just outside of town and escape their minds together. I will resist the magic carpet metaphor here and instead tell you that they really liked each other. I never spent time with the two of them together, which, looking back now, seems strange. But I heard about their summer. They each said I reminded them of the other. I was there even when I was not. When I think of my childhood now, I don't remember myself as a girl or even as Aladdin. I think of myself as Mason, who is actually a dead boy. There is something sick about that, about imagining yourself as a dead boy. What is a dead boy if not a boy who never dies? I imagine Mason is the man I never could be, but also as the man he could never be because he never was. When I picture him now, he is always laughing. He is laughing silently under those curls that were supposed to let us get away with everything but never actually helped us get away with anything at all.
0: We've been listening to Genevieve Hudson read from her story collection, Pretend We Live Here, from Future Tense Books. I love that story so much. Thank you. So the the word pretend and pretend we live here is something that i thought a lot about because it feels like there's multiple ways we can read that and and perhaps it's one key into this collection you, you write about how bechdel doesn't want to be a boy exactly but is attracted to something approximate that in a world with not enough options she goes towards the closest option and, and there's a couple of lines in your collection that jumped out in relationship to this So the protagonist in your story, Bad Dangerous, says, Sometimes putting on boy clothes does not make me feel more like a boy, but more like a girl, as if the hipless long coats or flat-chested shirts draw attention to all the things I'm not instead of infusing me with a kind of androgynous serum. And the protagonist in your story, Holes, says the phrase, The queerness I now wear on my body like a tuxedo. All of which made me wonder if the pretend and pretend we live here is a nod to Judith Butler, the theory of gender performativity, where she says gender proves to be performance that is constituting the identity it is purported to be. In this sense, gender is always a doing, though not a doing by a subject who might be said to pre-exist the deed. So I guess maybe this is a long-winded question of what are your thoughts about that framework? Uh, is that a framework that you wholeheartedly embrace one that you reject, or is there some sort of troubled middle that you feel about this theory of gender performativity
1: um i I love that Gs Butler quote that you shared um i it is a theory that i that I embrace. I do believe that that gender and our identities are are performance i don't I don't think it's as easy as saying um, you know that there is you know one one or two or three or however many ways to be i think whenever we're in our identities it is a kind of theater it is a kind of um putting on of you know a a mix of what we're supposed to be in quotes um you know from what society has projected onto us what we see around us who you know and then some version of truth that we're trying to dig out from from underneath so i think um yeah, I, d- I do believe that gender is a performance. Sometimes, you know, I'll w- I'll walk around and I'll see, I'll kind of imagine uh, people in different kinds of costumes or you know dressed in different ways. And I think you you actually really see this a lot in queer culture too, where you see you know um, how much of a performance uh, gender, or femininity, or masculinity can be, um, especially in the ways that you know we um, can how like. You know, putting putting makeup on or uh, taking makeup off or putting on different clothes changes so much about the way that people interact with us, the way that we hold our bodies, um, the power that we feel we have or don't have.
0: She she uses the word performance in that quote, but usually when she's talking about this, she makes a distinction, I think a crucial distinction between performance and performativity. Yeah, and she says when we say that gender is performed, we usually mean that we've taken on a role. Or acting in some way. To say that gender is performative is a little different. Mm -hmm. For something to be performative means that it produces a series of effects. We act and walk and speak and talk that consolidate an impression of being a man or being a woman. We act as if that being of a man or that being of a woman is actually an internal reality or simply something that is true about us. Actually, it is a phenomenon that is being produced all the time and Mm -hmm. reproduced all the time. And then also, she also says, there is no being behind doing, that the doer is merely a fiction added to the deed, and that the deed is everything. And all of this seems to suggest that unlike performance, mm-hmm. performativity is not something one can terminate. Mm-hmm. It's an ongoing action that creates who you are, Yeah, which is a fascinating thing. And it reminded me a little bit of, of this discussion with Eileen Miles, where she talked about the self being a layering of of gestures and it made me also think of a different way to read the title mm-hmm. of your book pretend we live here not only as the pretending of one's way into being so we can look at it as this nod towards gender performativity but also um the ways we pretend in relationship to the second half of the phrase we live pre- pretend we live here to pretend that we get along that we belong yeah. to pre- yeah. The ways we hide. Yeah. So, depending on where we live, to pretend we live here isn't always um, pretending ourselves into being, but mm-hmm. it might be um, either out of fear or confusion or a desire to be part of a community. Y- you've called Fun Home a book about secrets and the dangers of lies. Yeah. And quoted Winnicott, who said, It is a joy to be hidden, a disaster not to be found, which I feel like could be an epigraph for for pretend we live here also. So tell us a little bit about your obsession with secrets, um, in your life and the ways that you've grappled with the tension between secrets and revelation. And then hear about the difference between pretending oneself into being and the pretending of, of potentially, um, not being seen.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think secrets, hidden aspects of the self, um, are something that's always fascinated me, both in myself and in people around me. I think, you know, everyone has the secret self or secrets that they're that they're keeping for whatever reason, even if they're keeping them from themselves, whether it's for safety or w- whatever. Um, and I think one of the things that made me so interested in that too was being so present in some ways when I was growing up to these own secrets and secret desires and secret ways of being that I that I had inside of myself and feeling this like kind of ping of um, or like a thrill almost when I would hear someone else's secret or find out someone else's secret because it felt me it made me feel aligned in some way with that with that person and with this world that we're not always that we're like living in and also hiding from at the same time Um, so I, I love that you kind of point that out or, or drew attention to the fact that like the pretend we live here could also be, um, you know, not, not kind of like, uh, isn't this, you know, a wonderful place. Let's pretend we live here, but hot, hi- you know, a hiding and a, you know, pretending that you live somewhere that you're not always matched to mm-hmm. in order to find, um, sort of safety or to create some kind of veneer on the situation that makes you feel a sense of belonging that might ne- not necessarily be there. Um, what was the second part of your question?
0: Well, I mean, just how you grapple with that tension between yeah. secrecy and revelation. I mean, you've talked about in your own life that you love to keep other people's secrets. Yeah. And that there's a certain danger to the lie growing up as a Catholic, yeah. in the Catholic culture. Yeah. Um, and and yet you're, um, these stories are revelatory. It's yeah. Just, they're, they're stories of, of- Exposing
1: secrets. Yeah. A lot of so ways.
0: we have- yeah. We have this tension between the two. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that that kind of conflicted nature is something that there's some delight in playing with for me. Um, so I I find it hard to um, make a statement of truth in any one direction. So the the fact that I can be fascinated with secrets and with keeping secrets and these worlds that people have inside themselves that they're not showing and also be interested in... You know, writing characters that where we get kind of the underbelly of their life, and we see their secrets exposed, is an interesting. It's an interesting way to play with that whole concept to me. Yeah, and different the different sides of it too.
0: Well, what I one of the things I really like about the collection is they feel like many of the stories. I would say even most of the stories, they feel like they're the stories of the in between. Mm-hmm. They're they're stories of uncertainty or of of as-of-yet-enacted transition. So in one story, there are two women who still need a man around to sort of normalize the desire they feel for each other Mm -hmm. but haven't quite reconciled themselves to or or acknowledged yet. And there's another story when someone has changed the way they self-identify, but that change hasn't really manifested in the world at large. So there's all these confrontations with people who don't know about this thing that is still for them internal right um so and then there are these stories where we're sort of on the lip of discovery um whether it be kissing someone for the first time or an activist action where if they go through with either of them they'll have to um question who they are Mm -hmm. as a person so Mm -hmm. essentially they're they have you can't you don't know for sure whether they're going to and if they do perhaps it comes at some sort of uh cost yeah in the in the sense that they'll have to reevaluate who they are to themselves so talk to us a little bit about this space in relationship to what we've been talking about this undefined in between as it's what i would consider it a motif in in this collection or Mm. one of them
1: yeah i think similar to being in this in-between space i think a lot of these characters are and i say in transition not in the classic sense of like gender transition oh yeah that's not what i meant yeah 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 yeah, Yeah. yeah. um but i i feel like there's a sense of becoming or a sense of forward movement but not yet knowing what what is going to come of that you know how is this going to develop it could it could um almost like a, a fork in the road, but not not so obvious. It's like they could become this or they could become this, but it's like there's been something set in motion. They're in that sense of motion and we don't really know what they're going to do with it. Uh, and I just think so much of life is like that. And we never really get to the end of a decision. We never really get to the end of a desire or the end of an identity. We're always in the process of making ourselves and um, finding out who that is, what that looks like, what this feeling does for us, what this identity or this desire will, will do for us. I don't really think there's such thing, at least I haven't experienced it, in coming to "Quote unquote" terms with what this means, I you know, and then integrating it into your life, and then of uh, all of a sudden being this final finished thing. I think we're in process all the time, so I think really digging into that process and sitting in that moment and not tying things together and making it feel as though it ended happily or badly, that it's just still going on, um, is really interesting for me because that's really how I find life. I think we impose. You know, to create story and to create narrative, we impose beginnings, we impose endings on things, but um, really the middle is kind of where we always are, and it's only in retrospect that we can really see when something ended. Um, I think it's clear to look back and be like, this is how it began, but endings are a little more murky, and so I think to, to show people just in the midst of and in the process of um, I, I enjoy that. Well,
0: it's also, I think, exciting and pleasurable for the reader to be with characters who are willing to be in an undefined or less defined state yeah. and to be with them when new information or new opportunities might trouble who they think they are. And we also don't know what's going to happen. Right. Yet. Right.
1: I, I just I like the idea of challenging an an expected narrative or an and expected box. I think even with, you know, with queerness, I, um, you know, can sometimes feel very, I, I feel very queer, I can feel very gender queer, but I feel just as much, I don't feel necessarily non-binary, but I do feel sometimes like I'm just as masculine as I am feminine, or just as much in, you know, a, a man as a woman, and yet identify as a woman, I don't identify as non-binary, but I can feel that too. And I think that there's not really terminology for all of that always. Like, I don't always look to the language that we have right now around identity and gender and feel as though something, um, you know, fits me completely correctly. I feel like I'm still having to just be I'm just who I am and maybe there's not language for that yet or maybe one day is different than the other day some days I feel um queerer some days I feel more in my femininity some days I feel more in my masculinity and I like that kind of play between these identities and um yeah so I think that's something I was also trying to explore
0: well to circle back to this this phenomenon we talked about the beginning of of representation coming before experience yeah uh, many of the narrators in these stories are in love with people who aren't around. Uh huh. So the love is often happening within one's own mind. Yes. Um. Or imagination. So in a way, they're sort of creating, I think, a representation. They're not. A, and these portrayals of love are not in relation mm-hmm. in in real time and space, but it, within uh, a sort of suspended representation. I was just curious if you've thought about why we get love portrayed that way and, and pretend we live here.
1: Hmm. Well, I think in the same vein that a lot of these narrators are dealing with some of the isolation and the loneliness that comes from, as we spoke earlier, you know, about not necessarily fitting in, to the landscape that they're a part of, to the communities that they're in, maybe that kind of love isn't always as accessible to them. It's a little bit more taboo and um, maybe not as easy to find real feet in the place that they live. So I think that is, you know, something that I have, um, you know, seen and experienced and, you um, I I felt like that was an interesting thing to to kind of like draw forth in this collection was, okay, so love isn't maybe like traditional love or like an embodied love maybe isn't as accessible to these characters in the place that they're in, yet it's what they want quite Mm. badly. Um, And it's quite alive in their imaginations and it's the desire is quite alive within them. So what does that look like? And how does that plague them, obsess them? And um, how can they? How do they bring that forth into their lives? And is it just as real too? If it's not in, embodied in the same way, if this desire is for something that's no longer, um, you know, that they desire a person that's no longer there. They desire a person that they can't have for whatever reason, because these boundaries of society or distance or time have, you know, been put in between them. Um, is that lover desire, is that not just as real as maybe a relationship that or feelings that are drawn forth from a relationship that's with somebody who they're in more of a traditional relationship with? Mm-hmm. Like how do those desires like haunt us and also like become their own secrets that you have to live with and deal with?
0: So, so in one interview, you quote Roland Bart from A Lover's Discourse who says, someone tells me this kind of love is not viable but how can you evaluate viability? Why is the viable a good thing? Why is it better to last than to burn? And it reminds me of a piece that you wrote for Tin House about the book that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation mm-hmm. by Simone de, de Beauvoir, She Came to Stay. And I was hoping maybe you could talk about, maybe in more detail, the the narrative of this, um, I would call, unviable relationship mm-hmm. um, and the, what was compelling about Um, this book and also about this quote?
1: Um, Yeah, well, I think the quote is, uh, that's from a lover's discourse. And it's something that um, intrigues me because, you know, when we talk about love and relationship and society, often, you know, successful relationship is something that's stood the test of time. Um, You know, we look at an older couple that's weathered their lives together and we And I'm not saying that that isn't beautiful and that that isn't, like, a great, you know, image of love. So it's
0: not necessarily beautiful.
1: Yeah, it isn't necessarily beautiful. But we seem
0: to automatically assume it's beautiful.
1: We do, yeah. And we assume that that, that that relationship, therefore, is correct and, you know, should last. And I think that we don't give as much, you know, honor or space to relationships that maybe last a week or a month or a day or a few years but have maybe an an, an a kind of intensity or an effect on the two people that is quote-unquote successful or important or necessary or beautiful in sometimes a way that is more impactful and can last longer in the minds of people than you know this relationship that we think of as a traditional you know 50-year marriage um and uh But I don't think that we're anywhere near there as a society to put that kind of value um, or um, kind of importance or even like, you know, standards of success on those relationships that don't last in a traditional way, Um, even though, you know, we know that every relationship every relationship we have in the world is going to end you know it's some time whether that's through death or through someone leaving like nothing stays forever we say goodbye to everything at some point point. Um, and i think that uh then to go kind of move on to the second part talking about she came to stay which is a simone de beauvoir um book that is actually about her relationship with Sartre um and this you know woman that they brought into their relationship um in a way that they, you know, kind of hoped could could be sustainable, that the three of them could, could have a a relationship that coexisted, you know, and they would each have independent relationships, and then they would each have a relationship with each other. Um, And, you know, that kind of relationship isn't, it wasn't for them, quote, unquote, viable, it couldn't last. Um, But what was intriguing to me about it, when I encountered it all those years ago, was this kind of un, um, this kind of desire that I that was given all of the like the respect and attention in literature that you would see from this traditional like m- boy meets girl, fall in love kind of narrative that is exhausted <laughs> through through books and literature, and I think what was most interesting to me was the way that Simone de before wrote about her desire for this woman. Um, It was just so alive and it, you know, I recognized myself in it. I really saw myself. I was like, oh, well, I, you know, wow, this is okay in some ways. Um, Funny that I needed literature to tell me that, but in some ways I did. You know, I needed to feel like I could recognize these feelings in order to validate them and to really look at them myself. And so I think that's really what was most intriguing to me about that book was, This desire that she, the way that she looked at this woman that they were bringing into their relationship, and also the fact that these two people that were so important and influential and whose ideas I found to be like really revelatory had, um, you know, entertained this kind of relationship with a lot of importance and uh, validity.
0: And you could imagine, I haven't read that book, but I could imagine that even with that relationship uh, falling apart, that it's something that probably resonated. With a lot of their thinking going yeah. forward for a long time, yeah. So you could argue it'd be successful even in its not, in, yeah. even in, even in being an ephemeral,
1: yeah, and immortalized even, yeah, <laughs> in its ephemerality. Yeah.
0: Well, that that book was uh, was a fictionalized version of a real life event. That's right. And there's a lot of overlap, I think, between your your nonfiction in this, in 2018 and your fiction in 2018. So what, what were some of the considerations or what are some of your considerations when you decide you're going to write uh, queer short fiction versus, um, just writing short memoir pieces, for instance?
1: Um, yeah, it's a good question. I find myself more drawn to, Fiction because I think it allows for more play. Um, I don't always love to stay tied to the idea of truth, as in this factually happened to you in its exactitude, which, you know, we could also talk about the ways that, like, can you ever, when you're writing nonfiction, are you ever really, you know, are you always kind of just going to approximate truth? What's true? Our memories are so. Fallible. Are we ever really getting at what really happened? There's a lot of leniency there, which I think is interesting. Um, But I love the idea of kind of pushing against um, genres, breaking them open a little bit and saying, you know, I've written almost something that could be memoir and just said, this is fiction, you know, because I wanted it to be. I wanted to play with it in some way or just change some detail. And in some ways, by changing... Um, outward details like place or something about how two people interacted, I think you can actually get closer to the truth of the feeling of what happened. And I find that fascinating and interesting, too, by how suspending reality, you can get closer to another sense of reality. Um, So I think, you know, as I've moved forward, like, unless I'm really solicited a piece of nonfiction, someone says, like, can you write this, then I, you know, I will write nonfiction and really enjoy that experience. Sometimes it comes a lot quicker to write nonfiction, but I I think it can be really interesting to start with nonfiction and then blur that line a little bit and bring it into uh, a fictive world. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Could you read another story for us?
1: I'd love to. Yes.
0: How about date book?
1: Yes. Date book. November, they say is the cruelest month. Don't believe them. It's hot July with her bike grease, her stringless flings, her flat tires, her tendonitis of the wrist. The sun burns us right in the face. Neither of us has seen Sonoma, a dyke march, City Lights books, or each other before. Everything, even our breath, boils. Cruelty is meeting someone and knowing what you want is time. I take your hand at the farmer's market to lead you through the lines, the trick is letting go. Tijuana, I say, you'll have to tell me about it. August holds possibility like a baptism, your itinerary through town and the Polaroid we find of someone else's fun. The strawberries here taste like sugar, it's a promise. But you are from better places where water is greener than trees and the sky is bluer than the milk of your iris. Your fields are on fire with the red of them, the berries you smear your fingers through. I can't stop eating the vine. Train songs will always remind me of you. By September, you are another country again. The thought of you causes me to pick weeds, to put poems on the back of receipt paper. I get a package in the mail. It's wrapped in a map of the place where you live. I fall in love with the smell of the cardboard, the image of your palms folding the top down. We meet on an island in the middle. I feed myself to you until we're full. October is for dressing up, for getting robbed. I call you not crying. Someone breaks into my room, they touch my bed, they leave the smell of skin and clattered coins. I can't stop thinking about the stories on my computer I didn't save, the essay I was writing about you, behind your back I can make you into whatever I want. Your voice handles crisis better than anyone. You have mastered the art of using a thousand words to say nothing. I fall into the receiver. It's hard plastic I'm beginning to regard as your cheek. I go to the bookstore and flirt so hard five people try to kiss me. November is not cruel, but filled with visits. I wake up dreaming. You're in my mind. You sleep later than I like, and I pretend I'm sleeping too. You introduce me to your friends and I practice saying hello in the mirror until my cheeks fall down. I memorize your dialect, the cutting away of consonants and the inflections that leave your mouth. Your mouth meets my mouth and we both like what happens. December and we're standing on your parents' Doc and Nanaimo in our underwear. You are playing a mixtape on your iPhone. They are the same songs we've listened to 988 times, but they still sound new like everything about you always does. You dare me to jump in, but you do it first. Nothing scares you, except maybe me. I follow you under the freezing water, and our breath is snatched from our chests. It's fucking ice, we say, and our laughter becomes clouds. January. In February, we go to Seattle to say goodbye. We accidentally rent a weekend apartment over a lesbian bar. We laugh all the way up the stairs. Capitol Hill is all noise, but we don't even hear it. We never go to the lesbian bar. We make our own lesbian bar in the kitchen. We pretend we live here. We drink from cups. We unmake the bed. We note the space needle in the window. We pour white wine from cartons. We do everything we've never done before and everything we have. You tell me stories, and I listen. I want you to keep going. Keep going. You say you've never met anyone like me, which sounds familiar, like I've heard it before. You say a lot of things. Keep going. I drive you to the ferry. It's so early. It's nighttime. I'm sweating from my coffee. You can smell me. My favorite place to rest my hand is on your thigh, so I do it. I point at the flag on the boat that's yours. It's going to carry you. You'll be home in a few hours, working again at the crisis line where you shepherd other people out of sadness.
0: I've been listening to Genevieve Hudson read from her story collection, Pretend We Live Here from Future Tense. So, one recurring theme in the book is around food, uh-huh. which is, I think, by far the most explicitly explored in the story Adorno with a woman on a vegan activist bus. Uh But even here, she's an in-between protagonist, not just with gender. She is with gender. She's a lesbian who's just had sex with her girlfriend's boyfriend, but even being vegan. So she isn't fully a vegan, but instead of being public about not being fully a vegan, she acts like she's more than vegan (laughs) and that she's a fruitarian, Mm -hmm. um, which calls into question... Is she even fully on board with the act of, of civil disruption that they're planning mm-hmm. and whether she's going to go through with it um, and whether she'll reveal um, that she's she's on a vegan activist bus and she's not a vegan? Um, so in your conversation with, with Lainey Zumas, you, you talked about a seminar you took once on hunger and, and literary representations of food yeah. and anorexia in relationship to deprivation and control. Uh, and I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about this class, um, what sticks with you about it and um, what attracted you to taking it and what you're examining with our pretend fruitarian who who may be going through with an irrevocable act.
1: Yeah. Uh, so the class I took uh, was in graduate school. It was a literary seminar on the aesthetics of hunger. And um, the class really spanned a lot of concepts um, in relation to like you know content that explicitly talks about you know food food and resistance through hunger strikes or looking at Kafka's the hunger artist where um, uh, you know the the performance of not eating really becomes you know its own art form its own spectacle of restraint um, One thing I was really interested in at that time and one of the reasons I took the class was I was, Um, interested in the way that, um, like, the overlap between writing and the way we talk about writing and editing and the way we talk about bodies and food and, you know, the way that restraint um, plays into uh, the actual line and the actual word choice. And, um, you know, there's there's some... uh, Poets and there's been some some scholarship written around like an anorexic aesthetic in poetry and how you know we elevate this this lean line we almost can talk about it like that and we talk about you know cutting away excess and trimming the fat of a line and you can look at you know even the verse of a poem and it's this kind of skinny bony etched down thing and a lot of you know, poets themselves um, or some, you know, can can be these kind of like wafy, you know, intellectual, like almost disembodied um, uh, ideas or, you know. Uh, and that was fascinating to me. You know, where's the overlap there? What is what does constraining ourselves do to our creativity? What does, you know, um, restricting and disciplining our body do to our mind? Um What does restraining and disciplining our thoughts do to our creative practice? So there was a lot there that I was interested in and wanted to explore. And the class, you know, allowed me the room to do that. It was a really fascinating course taught by Sarah Lincoln, who teaches at Portland State. Um, But, uh, you know, I think that in this story, too, one thing that that I found to be interesting was the way, you know, like, I talk about bodies a lot or I write a lot about bodies. This character is, you know, in a queer body too. And the food that we put into our bodies very literally becomes our body. And, you know, what we um, choose to eat can also, I think, be seen as a way to purify ourselves, to punish ourselves, to indulge ourselves, to... Um, you know, satiate a desire. And this character in Adorno is looking to punish herself for what she sees as an excess of a desire or a wrong desire or a bad desire. And how she wants to cleanse herself is through. Um, restricting her food, limiting, you know, what she can have. And I think she's really attracted to these people that she sees dealing in food in a way that seems to be morally superior, um, anti-violence, to be ethical, all of these things that she wants and doesn't feel like she can ever be. So she steps into this secret life and she tries to, you know, be something that she isn't, to discipline herself through her use of food, to restrict herself. And in the end, she can't she's not really up to the task maybe it wasn't truly a noble task to begin with but she can't do it and i think to her that is seen as her accepting a moral failing in Hmm. some way too
0: i love that analysis of it yeah so my i think my favorite essay by you is hunger inside my queer body Mm -hmm. that you published at catapult and in it you say when i say i would rather look queer i mean hipless close-cropped, flat-chested, I mean a one-word syllable like hit, kick, run, jump, bite, I mean fly. And that's just an amazing couple sentences, uh, I think, very both the confidence and the punchiness of those those sounds. And, And you go on to complicate this, however, talking about how androgyny in our culture is regularly portrayed as a starving white woman dressed as a man. And you cite an article by Chris Nelson who says, Thinness is code for gender neutrality. The image we get of androgyny is so much wrapped up in gaunt faces, flat chests, and narrow hips. And this seems to leave you in a philosophical quandary, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is what you're exploring in this essay, with both a desire for a certain look and a knowledge of the problematic ways that look signifies in the culture. Um, so I was wondering if maybe you could just unpack that a little for our listeners who haven't read the essay and um, talk about the ways you've used food um, to achieve a look or also uh, ways um, the discovery of this twinning between uh, female white female anorexia and the notion of androgyny may have changed your relationship to food has mm-hmm. is the, is the insight around this the, the Analysis um, embodied itself for you in a different way?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, going back to what we were speaking of earlier with, you know, when my body began to change in puberty, I, you know, to me, everything that it was signifying, these breasts and hips and, you know, more of like a feminine figure, um, to me, set off alarm bells. And You know, it made me feel out of control in a way that um, made me want to regain it. So I really did try to exercise control around, you know, the food that I ate and trying to change my body through restricting my food intake to look more masculine, to have less curves, to have more lines and not necessarily – because I wanted this male gaze or male approval or to be this wavy kind of little female, but be because I wanted androgyny. And, and that was tied up in our, in what we think of as androgyny, which, you know, as you quoted is this starving white woman dressed as a man, or, you know, this sort of like hipless, breastless long haired boy, or, you know, you know, wavy, you know, woman wearing, wearing a, suit or wearing, you know, skateboarding clothes or whatever it is. And I, um, yeah, I, but I felt troubled by the fact that like by buying into that very limited idea of what androgyny was, that I was supporting a notion that I felt was problematic at its core, which is that, you know, only a masculine androgynous, like prepubescent body can be seen as, as in between that to have more of a female body can't ever be seen as in between, mm. that's always going to be gendered as female. And I think that's really problematic for people who don't fit into this very narrow, very limited body type. And, you know, I, I did sort of, you know, I felt as though I wanted that. And at the same time, it was really fucked up.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you talk about this narrow idea of androgyny, but it also seems to bring up perhaps your your narrow notion of what masculinity was at the time too because yeah. you you have this quote i refused to wear dresses i carried around a muscular gi joe figurine <laughs> who i named bone yeah he was tough he had a body like a rocket ship powerful sleek nearly impossible to break right which of course this feels like a certain trope yeah about masculinity as a response to a trope about androgyny yeah like you can end up in this Hamster wheel of of um or echo chamber of stereotypes potentially. Yeah.
1: yeah, exactly. But you know, to like a young girl, like there was nothing more masculine uh than this like little G.I. Joe figurine with this chiseled body, you know, it's like there's no question what this is. And yeah. it's tough and it's impenetrable from society and yeah. yeah. It's so so stereotypical and so kind of, you know, all the way in the other direction. Yeah.
0: So, so thinking about this, this question of uh, public representation of, of private desires and how they're received, you, you've talked about also about um, how you wrote largely or mainly queer stories in your MFA program, mm-hmm. um, but you wondered if it tokenized you or limited you as a writer, mm-hmm. that you had some anxiety about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just curious how the stories were received and whether your thoughts have changed over time about that question.
1: My thoughts have changed over time about that question, definitely. I feel less um, self-conscious about writing queer narratives. I feel very much that you have to write what you want to write, and that you know the stories around me were all dealing with straight culture in some ways, and that was not investigated at all that was again seen as this default way of being and and you know when i would write about a queer relationship or a female desire it was you know different in a in such a you know specific way that i think it was seen as more repetitive or more redundant because there's just less representation of it in you know in literature period um but some of it, I, I don't know if some of it was my own projection of insecurity and maybe even at the time some internalized homophobia, which I think, you know, definitely lingers in the body. If there was some of that coming in and having that self-consciousness and then looking for reinforcement in people, you know, around the workshop circle and, and, you know, really like being very highly attuned to it and seeing it and noticing it when I saw it in an expression or or whatever it was, Um but I did feel self-conscious about the fact that, like, I was obsessed with, you know, what it meant to have queer desire. I was obsessed with what it meant to be in a queer body, and that all of my stories would approximate those questions, or would look at them, or would, you know, bring them bring them up. And I felt like, is this becoming, you know, or do people think this is becoming cliche, or do people um, take this as, you know, more of like a novelty, less less serious? Uh, and I, I do think there was some of that. I do think there was some people might have been a little tired of, of that.
0: Yeah, I mean that's generous of you to to imagine there might be confirmation bias that you were yeah. looking for it. But it seems to me like that's a fair critique that uh, the heteronormative story is never going to be seen as repetitive. Right. Um, well, what do you do? You feel okay about the world calling your stories queer stories and. And then to take that a step further, what are your thoughts on the ways queer or gay literature sometimes gets uh, shunted into a a category in the bookstore, for instance, instead of just being happenstance among literature at large?
1: Right. I mean, I think that there is value in calling stories that are queer, queer, because it allows people that are really looking for that to find it. More, more easily. And I think that there's real power in that um, because in that narrative becomes more accessible. And I think stories are really important to people, especially younger people or especially people that are, you know, looking for representation of themselves like in the greater world or in, you know, out in culture. So that's important. I do think that that's true. But I also think that um, it can be limiting and it can label, you know, queer stories or LGBTQ literature is less serious to separate it and segregate it, and there's something about that that I find troubling. Um, I am, you know, enjoy being called a queer writer. I enjoy my stories being called queer. I love the legacy that I'm writing in, in that way, like so many queer writers, have been luminaries for me or north stars, and I appreciate them so much. Um, but I think that that literature that I love is literature. It's not queer literature. It's like that's a marketing technique to allow you know things to sell in a certain way or allow people to find it. But it, I, I think that it should be thought of with just as much seriousness as heteronormative literature or other kinds of stories. And I hope that we do get to a point at, at some time where they don't have to be regulated to their own shelf and um, they aren't, you know, set aside as something else. And sometimes when things are set aside as something else, they're also kind of shelved down a little bit too, where it's mm-hmm. like not as serious. And that's troubling to me. Definitely. Yeah.
0: Well, to, to return perhaps obsessively to the title, yeah. uh, pretend we live here. The second half of it suggests the notion of home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, wanted to just hear your thoughts about whether you see this as a collection about looking for home or whether there's that, whether that theme is something that you you've seen as you've engaged with the stories as you put them together.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that that theme is there uh, in the sense that um, there's a, there is a, um, an attention to place and to, maybe a notion more abstractly of what it means to be at home, what it means to be at home in a place where you are struggling to find community, where you're a loner, what it means to feel at home in a body that doesn't necessarily reconcile with like your mind or how you want your body to be. How do you find that sense of you know, that like sigh or that deep breath that allows you to like sit down and feel like you can stay where you are. Um, and what it even means, you know, what, what, it, what does that even mean? What does home even mean? You know, do we ever feel at home? Do we ever find that, that place to rest?
0: Well, when you, you did your, uh, soundtrack yeah. for, for the book at the large hearted boy website, uh-huh. um, and you picked the song, uh, there is a light that never goes out by the Smiths mm-hmm. as one that could be emblematic of the book entire. Mm-hmm. And you say it's partially because of longing for a home that doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and it makes me think back to that Bechdel quote of puberty being a post-lapsarian melancholy. Yeah. So if we're thinking of like the garden as something you can never go back to, right? Um, do you feel like the home is something imaginary?
1: I do. Yeah. I do think that the home is something imaginary. I think some people can have a really um, solid sense of it, but I do think that it's always, it's a concept that we've created, something that we're choosing. You know, even if we never leave our hometown, we're we're choosing to make that a place that we are going to stand in and identify with. And um, I don't think it's ever truly becomes real. It can always change. It can always shift. We can always put the choice down. Well,
0: you have this interesting thing that in this collection, the stories are are mainly either in Alabama, yeah. the Pacific Northwest, or Amsterdam, uh-huh. which is an unusual triangle of, of yes, places. Yes. <laughs> uh, the questions of home, though, go beyond questions of geography to whether how one's body can be or cannot be at home. But that can't be abstracted from place. Or time mm-hmm. entirely. So the the questions that have to be dealt with in a certain body in Amsterdam or Alabama, I, I don't imagine are the same questions. Right. Uh, in your story, cultural relativism it juxtaposes life in Amsterdam and Alabama uh, and sort of presses on this issue. I was just curious, as a person, as as the author here, who um, who's lived in mm-hmm. Alabama and Amsterdam mm-hmm. and Oregon, what your experiences in in Amsterdam were around these questions and how they shifted because obviously I know that they have in Europe a very different race history and ra- racial analysis yeah. than America that th- a lot of the things don't necessarily translate yeah. in terms of the, the history of the language that we use. Mm-hmm. Is that also true around uh, gender theory and, and um, the way certain uh, gestures in the world would be received in Amsterdam versus in Portland.
1: Um, it is different. It is still Western culture, and I, I think that there are still a lot of the same um, references and anchors to you know pop culture uh, as there are you know in a lot of countries in big cities in Western Europe um, and in the U.S. Like bigger, you know, more coastal cities in the U.S. too. But there's a difference because I think especially in Amsterdam, the Dutch um, fancy themselves to be, you know, as a nation, very progressive and, um, you know, kind of on the forefront of these thoughts about like gender and sexuality and they were the first country in the world to legalize gay marriage mm. and you know what this one hospital in amsterdam was one of the first um to really start doing sexual reassignment surgeries and they have like a whole you know gender team there and you know just like a big facility for trans issues and yet i find that um it's still very, very much rooted in gender norms. There, they still really have ideas of like what it means to be you know, really strong, strong ideas of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, and they can accept, you know, certain um, reference points for gayness and lesbianism, especially when it looks a certain way, when it's very homonormative, um, and so when you are approximating, um, just. Uh, you know, straight marriage where when you're approximating straight culture with your gayness or with your queerness, it's very accepted in Amsterdam. But when you do anything that kind of does um, mess with those boxes or goes in between or, you know, really queers it even more, it's really hard for them to understand, Mm. you know, culturally what's going on because that um, messes with their reference point, which is super homonormative. So I think to be really queer there um, is – Can be confusing, you know. But if there's like a butch femme couple, and you know, one woman looks super, super masculine, the other one's really feminine, or if there's two, you know, high femmes together, and they want to like get married and have a child, then it's kind of like, yeah, great, we totally accept that, and we have space for that. But if there's something in between that, it's a little bit harder to. Hmm,
0: That's fascinating.
1: Conceive of, yeah.
0: Well, originally you were you were going to Amsterdam on a Fulbright scholarship, right? Yes to study fables magic and myth in order to queer the tales but i was wondering <laughs> why would you go to amsterdam for for fables fairy tales i mean maybe i'm naive I'd, i i was just yeah. is amsterdam a special place in well, regards to studying fairy tales and magic
1: well what i was interested in at that that time like leaving grad school was i wanted to go abroad And I wanted to, you know, live in a bigger city in Europe and have time and space to uh, finish kind of what I'd started in grad school, which was looking at like how you can pull forth uh, myth or folklore or um, old fairy tales and put them into more contemporary settings and queer them and kind of mess with them, but take some of these ideas forth and use them as tropes. And, um, I found this research institute that was located in Amsterdam that dealt with kind of Western folk tales and fairy tales called the Miertens Institute and housed like all of these like books and stories on, you know, mythology of the low countries. And, um, my grandfather was Dutch. I had some ties to the, to the country. And so I thought that would be a good perch to go from and a good library to have access to and just a place to work on writing. Hmm. Was it? Yeah, it was. It was really good? Yeah, it was great.
0: So so I recently learned that you just got another book accepted for publication. Yes, I did. That's a novel set in Alabama? Yes. Um, in your words about queer boyhood, religious extremism, toxic masculinity, and poison-drinking pastors. <laughs> so I'm already sold on reading this book, but can you tell us a little bit more about it, or do you have a taboo about about talking about a book? I have a little
1: bit of a taboo about talking about a book, but I'll give you a little bit more um, insight into it, but I don't want to talk too much about it. Um, It it is about a germ. It takes place um, in Alabama uh, in an unnamed city. That's a university town. um, That's at kind of the height of, you know, football culture and, um, you know, uh, Christian fundamentalism, Southern Baptist, Christianity, charismatic pastors. And this young um, German immigrant moves with his family to Alabama. His parents are going to work at the Mercedes Benz plant there. And he is queer. He has a strange power that he's coming to terms with dealing with. And he is subsumed into this world of Alabama football culture and um, this kind of like high masculinity, toxic masculinity, violence. And yet at the same time, he's very drawn to this outsider, kind of witchy, genderqueer um, boy who's also, you know, going through high school with him. And it's about how he's reconciling his desire for um, both of these ways of being that he sees represented in Alabama and how he deals with that.
0: Wow. That's exciting. Do we? When is yeah. that coming out?
1: Um, I'm not sure yet. The pub date hasn't been announced
0: quite yet. Okay. Yeah. So when you when you interviewed Maggie Nelson, you asked her about ghost books, mm-hmm. books that she leaned upon when she wrote her books. Yeah. Uh, for instance, Wittgenstein's books were ghost books for Bluettes. And in her response, she quotes the 17th century writer, Sir Thomas Brown, who was intrigued by the transmigration of souls. Um, Nelson doesn't believe in reincarnation, but she was intrigued and moved by this and its proposal of a deep relationship between the past and the present, between one soul or one mind and another. And that, in her words, leaning against other texts, thinking with other minds, Letting another person's writing haunt you, inhabit you, inspire you, bother you quite thoroughly isn't just a means of spurring one to produce thoughts or books. It's also a wager about how deeply intertwined our consciousnesses may be. It is to wonder, as Henry James did in his late novels, whether consciousness exists between us in the air rather than within individual minds, the wild and productive gambit of leaning against is that we're not really leaning against others, but against a great throbbing consciousness, a soup of soul and mind in which we all share, even if that sharing is characterized by dissensus census or a mirage of separateness rather than a blurry unity. That's a crazy, amazing quote. It's
1: beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I love that you shared it.
0: But obviously we know the ghost book for your book, A Little in Love with everyone yeah. because the ghost book is explicitly engaged with Fun mm-hmm. Home Alison mm-hmm. Bechdel um, but what are the texts that you would consider the ghost books for pretend we live here and or your upcoming novel what what are some of the consciousnesses that you're you're in conversation with in between the two of you
1: yeah you know I'm most um, present to the Boys of Alabama one right now. Um, I'd say Ann Carson, Autobiogra- Autobiography of Red, feels very much like a ghost book for that, even though the books are quite different.
0: Well, I mean be the football book in Alabama. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. That's a great ghost book to have yeah. Autobiography of Red.
1: Yeah. But, you know, there's something about her writing that that truly haunts me. In uh, her lines that really feel like they stick to my bones, I can't shake them. And the way that she writes about desire and connection and love and that kind of first love in that book is so pared down, and it just feels like it is like just a bolt of lightning. Like it's so clear and it's so sharp, and it just like cracks, it just like cracks me open. And I, I really feel that book echoing through. Um, through Boys of Alabama in that way in a way that is you know maybe not won't be obvious to people but feels like it has impressed itself in Um, for pretend we live here there's so many writers that I feel like have you know every writer that I read in some way really stays with me and especially you know I'd say writers almost more than books for me um Flannery O'Connor, uh, was somebody who I think was kind of haunting me as I, as I wrote this Faulkner, I think a lot of Southern writers were coming through. Um, but, uh, you know, there's also like, I'd been reading a lot of Edmund White at the time too, and James Baldwin, um, yeah, so I think it was more, it's more writers that kind of pull forth and feel like they really, like, become kind of ghosts or ghost structures as, as I'm writing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, could we end with just one little, one more little segment from A Little In Love With Everyone? Of
1: course, yeah. Dorothy Allison is another writer who, like Bechtel and Eileen Miles, has been essential in articulating lesbian life, queer trauma, and queer desire. She demands something of queer writers and calls them to the table beside her. In her 1992 keynote address at OutRight, the Gay and Lesbian Writers Conference, Allison says, I believe in truth. I know its power. I know the threat it represents to a world constructed on lies. As writers, as revolutionaries, tell the truth. Your truth in your own way do not buy into their system of censorship, imagining that if you drop this character or hide that emotion, you can slide through their blockades. The only hope you have, the only hope any of us has, is the remade life. Allison knows that honest stories wield power. She knows what happens when truth is withheld, when it's curled inside a fist and tucked in a pocket. She knows what happens when certain lives get left out of the story. What happens is we get a culture of violence, isolation, marginalization, and pain. She is calling for us to break through those cultural blockades with radical acts of bravery and storytelling. What I want, my ambition, is larger than anyone imagines, Allison writes. I want to be able to write so powerfully, I can break the heart of the world and heal it. I want to write in such a way as to literally remake the world, to change people's thinking as they look out of the eyes of the characters I create. Imagine the world queer people could create if we heeded her call. Are we, as queers, necessarily educators? Are we called to tell the truth by virtue of our identities? Are our bodies radical? Are our identities political? Are our work archivable? Are we heroes simply by existing? I think the answer is yes.
0: Such a great pleasure to have you on the show, Genevieve.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun.
0: We are talking today to Genevieve Hudson about her nonfiction book, A Little in Love with Everyone from Fiction Advocate, and Pretend We Live Here from Future Tense Books. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. I'm excited to add one of my favorite essays of the last several years to the bonus archive. Genevieve Hudson, reading her piece, Hunger Inside My Queer Body, joins bonus material by Layli Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Lainey Zumas, Therese Marie Myatt, Sheila Hetty, Forrest Gander, John Keane, Jen Bervin, Diane Williams, and others. All this can be found at Patreon.com slash Between the Covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at SoundCloud.com slash Barbara Browning.